Welcome to Idle Chatter, brought to you by the Machinery Digest, where steel and soil meet. A weekly podcast by a New Jersey farmer to all farmers and ranchers across this great nation. And yes, there are farms in New Jersey. Regardless of the crop you grow or the livestock you raise, we all have one thing in common. Agriculture runs on passion, sweat, tears, and machinery, and that is why the Machinery Digest exists, a no-nonsense, grease-under-your-fingernails educational website. It was created to provide a transfer of knowledge so that you can maintain, service, and most importantly, understand today's complex farm equipment. My name is Ray Bohax, and I farm too. It is time now to get under the sheet metal. Hello and welcome to Idle Chatter. Ray Bohax here, your host, coming to you from chilly, or probably more cold, Catswamp Road in Warren County, New Jersey. I'm also known as the Hot Rod Farmer, so this is to all you Hot Rod Farmers out there also. Welcome and hopefully you enjoy today's show. Well, it is what I guess we call Black Friday, the day after Thanksgiving, and I hope that everyone listening and those that are not listening had a blessed and wonderful Thanksgiving. Uh, it's a wonderful time of year, in my estimation, and we should give thanks, obviously, every day for the blessings that the Lord gives us, but it's nice to have a, a country such as America that has a national holiday to recognize the blessings in our life and the blessings on our land. And to the people in retail, they call today Black Friday. So my inbox and my email was full of offers from companies and stores that I don't even know about or have ever done business with. And I guess that's today the uh, the modern version of junk mail, right? Years ago, we used to get junk mail through the uh, mailman, and today we get it through the inbox. But uh, as they call it, Black Friday, as you all know, because it's supposedly uh, the day that the retailers go from being in the red to being in the black with their sales. And I think that's really interesting to note because, uh, as I've said other times in my podcast, is that I think as farmers and people in agriculture, farmers and ranchers, that we also need to look at other businesses and and to see what obstacles they face and what challenges they face and how they uh, overcome them. And I think it's important because we could glean information from that and glean maybe uh, a pathway that we need to take. But where I'm getting at with this is quite simple. You would tend to think that um, a retailer, a store, or today, whether it's on the website or whether it's a mix, a mix, a bricks and mortar building, would have been in the uh, in the black for the year long before uh, Thanksgiving weekend. But I guess not. And you know, the take-home message there is that every business has its struggles, and uh, a lot of you know farmers don't go into the cannot go into the black obviously until they sell their crop so maybe for a lot of guys this is their black friday also that they're moving product out of the bin and into the marketplace uh and trying to uh to get that cash flow going so basically in essence to say succinctly there's no business that's easy 
every business has its challenges what's a challenge for a farmer is not a challenge for maybe a retailer or an auto manufacturer or uh, a restaurant but they we all have our challenges and the thing is to be able to work around those challenges and use those turn those negatives into a positive and it's not easy uh it's obviously always easier just to have uh, the, the money coming in but that's really not the case and uh and I just want to, you know, tell everybody that, not that you don't know it, but oftentimes we only look at our own industry and not look at others. So today is the day that that's all going to happen, but today is also the coldest day that we've had so far this year in Warren County. And it was, at our place, it was about 12 to 13 degrees. They predicted 5 but so I'm happy we didn't get down that low. And then when I was coming back from coffee this morning, I go to the TA truck stop in Columbia, New Jersey, every morning for coffee. The thermometer in the uh, trusty little Ford Fiesta uh, at one particular point dropped down to seven. So basically, uh, this is probably the first real hard freeze we've had this year. Not probably, it is. And my cover crop... Uh, is probably going to get ready to go dormant with this but it's remarkably green because it's had a, uh, a good growing season we planted it on september 28th and i broadcast that and it came up right away and we had a uh probably got a pretty good stand there and it's taking a little bit longer for it to go dormant than i had thought which is good so uh really really happy about that a couple of other things is that you know with this cold weather I want you to realize uh, two dynamics that happen. Number one is with tire pressure. And this is tire pressure on anything, whether it's a car, truck, uh, farm vehicle, or what have you, tractor, combine, you name it. Because the, the tire in the air doesn't know really what it's on. But for every 10 degree Fahrenheit change in temperature, uh, a tire will have its inflation pressure impacted by one psi so as the air gets colder the inflation pressure drops and as the air gets hotter the inflation press pressure increases so at this time of year if i'm going to um, for instance take the car tires and the road vehicle tires i would normalize i would take an infrared gun and i would read the temperature of the tires so let's say i have it in the garage and it's 40 degrees in the garage and i would read the temperature of the tire with an infrared gun and then i would normalize the pressure to be to be at around 20 degrees and what i mean by normalize so let's say for easy arithmetic that uh, at 40 degrees I have 30 pounds of air in the tire on my wife's escape and I want to be able to maintain that temperature at 20 degrees so that's that, so I would have to run 32 psi approximately at 40 degrees Fahrenheit to have to have 30 psi at 20 degrees so what I usually like to, in the dead of winter, I usually like to normalize the temperatures on the, t the tire pressures on the road vehicles to about 10 degrees F. So using that math, if the tires on her escape had, if I want, have 30 degrees, 30 degrees, duh, uh, 30 pounds at 40 degrees, I would need to have 33 pounds at 40 degrees to have 30 pounds at 10 degrees. 
so it's a 10 degree difference it's for every 10 degrees you will lose one psi and then as the temperature increases so if it's a 50 degree day then the temperature will go up it'll go up approximately one psi for every 10 degrees fahrenheit in weather and that's very very important because lots of times what will happen is that if the tires do not have enough air in them specifically on a road vehicle and then you go down the road and you hit a pothole uh, a pothole in a, specifically in a paved road uh, really not so much on a dirt road because usually the edges aren't as sharp and you um, flex that sidewall it's very very possible and it happens quite often with low profile tires a lot of cars today have low profile tires not much sidewall that the sidewall actually goes away from the bead for a split second and lets all the air out of the tire immediately goes flat like a blowout but you did not hurt the tires because you did not have sufficient pressure in it to support the load as it came out of that pothole, that chuck hole, and that bead moved away from the edge of the rim and let all the air out. And so that's why it's, uh, you want to make sure that you have sufficient pressure in the tires. And obviously, the you need sufficient air pressure to use the entire tread pattern. So keep that in mind as the weather turns cold. It's just a cold weather tip today. And the other thing, for all you hot rod farmers out there, hey, when the weather gets cold, using that 10 degree Fahrenheit temperature change, for every 10 degrees Fahrenheit that the uh, air gets colder, the engine makes 1% more power. So if you compare the power output of an engine that was at 70 degrees F versus zero degrees f you would actually have seven percent more power and that works that math works out very very close to being right on the money and it makes no difference if it's a five horsepower tecumseh engine on a snowblower or a engine in your in your semi hauling grain or your car or tractor or combine what have you i know a lot of guys are combining yet uh out west in the western corn belt and parts of canada uh, with some real cold weather and you will find that that engine is making more power and that is because the air is denser coming into it so for every 10 degrees Fahrenheit power is altered by one uh, one percent the air gets hotter power goes down one percent gets colder power goes up one percent and with tire pressure for every 10 degrees Fahrenheit the, the uh, pressure inside the tire is altered by one psi not one percent but one psi Alrighty, so a uh, little bit of trivia there but it makes a difference when you truly understand what's going on with your equipment and it allows you to uh, to be more efficient and that's what this podcast is all about efficiency in the farm shop efficiencies and uh using your equipment to its fullest with the minimal cost and you know as an aside to this that you know the things that you learn here and i'm not saying you go to your banker and say oh i'm listening to the hot rod farmer but you know if you do tell them when you do when you are doing your negotiations for the 2019 crop season planting season and you do uh ex not explore but explain to them that you are studying to increase your efficiencies in your farm shop and your with your equipment I'm not going to say that that's going to be the thing that's going to uh, make a world of difference. 
but it also it does show a mindset of you and it shows a mindset to your banker or to your landlords or to any financial institution that you are thinking out of the box and you're looking to maximize every aspect of your farm or ranch and to somebody uh to somebody that's either loaning you money or what have you or a partner with you or a landlord that's partnering with you partnering with you or anybody else that makes a real big difference it shows uh initiative it shows thought process and it shows uh, someone that's looking for every way possible to make their operation as profitable as it can so uh, you'll keep that in the back of your mind okay a couple of other quick little things as of the other day um the hot rod farmer podcast idle chatter is also available on itunes so i'm happy about that and if you listen on the fran network i believe that fran is also available on itunes also so now we have um you could listen to my podcast on my website farmmachinerydigest.com on the fran network which is a great great network of uh, very eclectic podcasts and ag daily the uh, apple itunes and i am also working with another outlet so it's uh, getting out there thank god and let me see what else i wanted to talk about before we get into our topic well basically it'd be nice if i told you what i'm talking about today right you've been sitting there or whatever patiently listening to this new jersey farmer dry land farmer from new jersey babbling about everything and the topic today because the weather turned cold is diagnosing poor heater performance in equipment and in vehicles as we get into the cold weather a heater becomes very very important probably even more important than air conditioning does is in the summertime so uh, at least you could open the windows right well i guess in the combine you can't but in most applications you could open the windows you could open the door in the combine and uh, try to cool off but when it's cold out there you definitely need to uh, have some heat in that cab or in that vehicle so without any further ado we're going to discuss that and so the topic today, as I said, is how to diagnose heating issues in liquid-cooled vehicles, which I didn't say before. Okay, this is going to start out with a basic review because you need to understand this, and we'll ha- I'll use it as a segue into uh, diagnosing your heating system. But first, we have to start at the foundation. Every building is built on the foundation, right? And uh, unless it's a lean-to, but the foundation is what we need to have in life no matter what we do, because with that foundation, we can build upon it. So now, if we look at an engine, and obviously a liquid-cooled engine, I'm not going to say that, keep repeating that. If we look at an engine, the, the heat source for the to warm the passenger compartment comes from the engine right so the engine is the heat source and we need to understand that the radiator does not cool the engine the radiator cools the liquid and the liquid cools the engine so the heat from the combustion inside the engine goes into the liquid and then goes into the radiator the radiator dissipates that heat into the atmosphere the front of the radiator that has the air coming across is called the air side and the air the ambient air flowing through the radiator by whatever means whether it's sucked through a fan or a road vehicle having having the velocity of the vehicle is irrelevant the air side of the radiator introduces the uh, cooler ambient air 
across the fins of the radiator and the, and the fins attached to the tubes and the tubes reject the heat because hot goes to cold. So that's the uh, way that works. So the liquid, so the heat in the engine, the liquid in the engine, excuse me, the heat from the engine transfers into the liquid and the liquid is what is used to heat the passenger compartment. Now keep in mind that when you're when an radiator is being designed the goal is to have a 20 degree temperature drop so 10 to 20 well usually 20 degrees and that's at at, at the um, highest horsepower load and as we know that and we've discussed this before in the podcast is that an engine doesn't make its full power all the time so what will happen is that the radiator will be designed to drop the liquid temperature about 20 degrees when the engine is under its highest thermal load which is making the most torque so whenever an engine is producing the most torque is when it has its highest thermal load it has its highest volumetric efficiency which I had touched on that briefly and I am going to eventually do a podcast on that so and the radiator is sized to cool the engine under maximum load and because of that there needs to be a thermostat and what the thermostat is going to do is limit the flow of the coolant from the engine to the radiator to maintain temperature and that is the purpose of the thermostat so we want the engine engines like cold air and a warm block and hot oil so cold air most oxygen density a warm block to support combustion and it likes hot oil so that it flows easily through the motor through the engine and has the least and and the least amount of friction now the thermostat can be made and this is generic and you could look at all of your engines as depending upon how it is designed you know and this holds true for you know, we have a you have a liquid cooled utv or something it makes no difference it's gonna you have a liquid cooled motorcycle this all pertains it doesn't care what it the engineering aspects of it doesn't make any difference so if the thermostat is in the top hose uh, when I mean the top hose, that the top hose of the radiator connects to the thermostat uh, housing, then that is what's uh, called a pressure side, pressure side location. And if it, the thermostat is in between the engine and the bottom hose, it's called a suction side, because the top hose where the f- liquid comes out of the engine the coolant is the pressure side, and the bottom where it goes back into the engine is the suction side. The water pump is a centrifugal pump a centrifugal pump however you want to say it and it has a pressure side and a suction side just like on a sprayer all of those dynamics work exactly the same now the temperature rating i'm giving you some some just some foundation here before we discuss how to diagnose this the temperature rating that is stamped on the thermostat is the crack open temperature a lot of people don't understand that and you know i have that as one of the questions on my toolbox test so you should go there and take some tests and also keep in mind that those tests now are printed in the ag now magazine every month as of the november issue but the, so that is the crack open temperature that's just the point when the, the thermostat is going to start to unseat and allow coolant to flow 
when the thermostat is closed, and it makes no difference whether it's a, a suction side or a pressure side location, when the thermostat is closed, the the coolant does not flow to the radiator and circulates around in the block. And that is why an engine has a bypass circuit. So that is that, so the pump does not cavitate and allows the fluid to have movement through the engine and absorb heat. Now the hottest, the, the hottest part of any engine is the cylinder head where combustion is, and that's the hardest part for the liquid to cool, whereas the cylinder block is less of a task to cool because the true combustion event is not happening there. So when the thermostat is closed, the coolant is circulating through the block and then at the temperature rating on the thermostat it starts to crack open. And when it starts to crack open, what it does, it starts to send some coolant to the radiator. And then when the thermostat is fully open, it is sending the coolant to the radiator. But there's a caveat here I want to attach to it. Years ago, the industry used to use what was called a, uh, well, let's just call it a normal thermostat because I don't want to confuse you with the technical name of it. But if you look at a lot of modern engines, you'll have a thermostat and it'll have another leg with another disc underneath it. That is called a bypass style thermostat. What happens with a thermostat that is not a bypass style, that doesn't have the additional leg on the bottom with the disc on it, that even though it was open, it never fully closed off the bypass passage. And the bypass passage could either be internal in the engine or it could be an external hose. Like a small block Ford had an external hose. Chevy, some Chevys had an external hose. A lot of Chrysler products had an external hose. But it's irrelevant how they move the coolant. And when a traditional thermostat, a poppet-style thermostat, that that was uh, when it was fully open, some of the coolant still bypassed the radiator. And then the industry came out with what they call a bypass thermostat, which had additional leg and disc and spring on the bottom. And when that thermostat would open, it would close off the bypass and force all of the coolant through the radiator. Right, so it's very important. So if you, and you should, even though you could replace a bypass thermostat with a regular thermostat, you are making the cooling system less efficient. You're, just, you're stealing efficiency from it. And if anyone has a more modern engine, what I'm sure you all do, a more modern engine, you took the thermostat out. There's a very good possibility it has a bypass thermostat has that other leg on it. So, at that crack open temperature, the thermostat starts to open. And depending upon the calibration of that thermostat, it usually takes between 10 and 20 degrees more liquid temperature to, for it to be fully open. So if it, let's say if it's rated 180, it cracks open at 180, it starts to let some coolant flow from the engine block into the radiator, partial flow like taking a faucet and opening it up a little bit and getting a little bit of water coming out. And then as the temperature in the engine block builds, and the liquid temperature builds, then what will happen, that starts to open more, and then eventually it'll be fully open on an older style, non-bypass thermostat. A small amount of the coolant will always bypass the radiator. On a bypass style, it will actually close off that passage and send 100% of all of the liquid, the coolant through the radiator to dissipate the heat and bring it back into the engine. So it needs to 
it needs to cool off so that it becomes an effective medium to pulse heat out of the engine. Alrighty, now, so in essence, uh, within the industry or any time that you're dealing with with uh, temperature or heating up something that in engineering we call it TT, time to temperature, and what will happen is that if you have a more modern engine with a bypass style thermostat, the time to temperature will, uh, the time to temperature usually will be uh, less. So it'll warm up quicker. It'll warm up quicker because it's not allowing anything to go to the radiator. It's keeping all of that coolant in the block. And then once it does become warm and or up to temperature, the thermostat is fully open. It's blo it's blocking off that bypass. Now, so we have that. So in essence, let's recap at this particular point. The engine is the heat source, the coolant is the medium used to heat the passenger compartment, and it, it's able to do that by removing heat from the engine. The cylinder head is the hottest part of the engine, and the coolant removes the heat from there, and, and the engine block, but it's a lot harder to remove it from the cylinder head than it is from the engine block, because it's, it's, there's more of a temperature differential. Now, with a newer vehicle, newer engine, newer application, I always use those terms because the same thing would happen with a farm tractor or a combine or your pickup truck. The old style designs would pull the water, which is the coolant. Within the industry, we use the term water, like water pump, even though it's not water. Would pull the water from the block into the heater core. The new style or the new thought process, just like no-till is a, new, a newer thought process, is to not pull the water from the block, but to pull it from the cylinder head into the heater core. And that's very important, and that's one of the reasons why your newer engines get have time to temperature or the discharge temperature at the heater comes up a lot quicker than the older style engines did because you're pulling coolant you're pulling the water from the hotter location so that's very important for for heater performance because as an engineer you want to reduce the time to temperature you want the person to be able to get into that vehicle start it up and that's why you'll even notice if you have a temperature gauge in your in whatever the application is and you were to bend down and feel the discharge temperature from the heater that it would be much warmer sooner time to temperature i'm not saying it'd be hot warmer sooner than it would in an older application even though the gauge is still reading that the engine is cold or only partially warmer we would call an engineering the intermediate stage not full-blown cold and not fully warm and so that is why because it's pulling the liquid from the cylinder head in lieu of the uh of the block so that now another thing comes into play is that a term that's really not used that much when you're talking about heater performance and uh, it's actually used a lot when in, in engineering when we're talking about about a catalytic converter or a diesel oxidation catalyst or what have you and what is what it is is it the, the term is thermal inertia and thermal inertia means that in simplistic terms it means that what you have to do is you have to heat up one area before the heat could transfer to another 
So if you were to, let's say, let's talk about thermal inertia. So let's say you're heating up a bolt and you want to uh, get the get the uh, bolt out. It's rusty, and you start to heat the bolt. It's going to take the bolt has to has to get to a certain amount of temperature, and it's going to be based upon its metallurgy, its mass, what have you, before it starts to send that heat or transfer that heat into the uh, threads and into whatever the bosses that that bolt is on. So that is thermal inertia, and um, the reason why it's a concern, and that's why if you look at, as an aside to this, if you look at uh, most vehicles today, and most engines, and more on a road vehicle, than uh, especially a gasoline engine, than versus a uh, farm machinery, because it's different emission standards, and obviously gasoline is a different fuel, that's why the catalytic converter is so close to the uh, exhaust manifold because of something called thermal inertia. They want to be able to heat that catalytic converter up as soon as possible so it actually starts to do its job as a catalyst and and, and scrub the emissions is a good way of saying it. And if it was four, five, six feet away from the exhaust port of the cylinder head, which is the heat source, is that you would have to heat up all of that pipe and all of that area and the thermal loss into the atmosphere before the converter got hot. So that's thermal inertia. And why I'm bringing this up is that most people operate the heater in a vehicle or piece of equipment the wrong way. If you get in, I'm going to use your truck for example, you get in your pickup truck and you start it and you're going to go to town and it's cold outside, what you need to do is evoke the heater, put it on heat and put the temperature control on fully warm, as hot as it goes, but the fan on low. And you may say, well, it's going to blow cold air. Well, it's going to blow a little bit of cold air. You have the fan on low. But because of thermal inertia, you want to be able to heat up that ducting that the heater, that the air comes through, uh, and everything that's underneath there that is the the passageway for the coolant to come into the end, to come into the heater core, and for the air to come into the passenger compartment. And if you put that heater on low, high temperature, low fan, put that heater on low while the engine is warming up you will find that your time to temperature as far as the discharge temperature of of the air coming out of the duct in the vehicle will decrease dramatically because if you wait for the temperature to come up on the engine and then you put the you put evoke the heater circuit then all of that ducting is still basically at ambient temperature and now you have to try to bring that temperature up to what the what the the discharge temperature of the of the liquid coming out of the engine is and it takes longer so you're not going to freeze to death it you'll have a slight draft you probably won't even notice it because it's going to be so cold in the vehicle but you will have your time to temperature for your disc for your warming up the passenger compartment and the discharge temperature same thing with you run the defrost the discharge temperature will be much sooner time to temperature by evoking that heater circuit in that vehicle in that piece of equipment as soon as you get in start that engine even though the liquid temperature is still cold now another thing keep in mind is that on a application that has an air conditioner system for the summer is that in almost every in every every use that i could think of and you know then again as an aside to this 
even on farm equipment, you know, tractors, combines, sprayers, most of that, if not all of that technology for is is basically auto it's it's automotive based. They they don't reinvent the wheel. They steal it from the auto industry. So this pertains to uh, to that equipment also is that that when you put the defroster on so you have it so you have you put the defroster on and you have it on full temperature it always evokes I shouldn't say always because it's probably if it's 30 below zero it won't but it after a certain ambient certain temperature and I would probably have to say from zero on up is that it evokes the air conditioner compressor so when you go into the defrost cycle you're actually evoking the air conditioner compressor and the reason why that is happening is that it uses the air conditioner compressor to pull the humidity the dampness out of the air to help defrost the windows and make it more efficient so the thing is that if you got into the car and it's a very cold damp day once you started to build some temperature i would have i would start it for thermal inertia put the heater on and then once you start to get some some uh decent discharge temperature you could actually most applications have a mode where you could run uh redirect part of the air to the to the heated duct which is on the floor and the reason why heated ducts are always on the floor is because hot air rises if you had the heater duct up on the top or shooting up towards the ceiling the hot air would be up there and you wouldn't have a you'd have a big temperature gradient down by where your feet are and then you could evoke that that what they used to call bi-level position where you put some of the hot heated air to the defroster and some of the heated air to the um to the floor duct and that would take some of the humidity out and then you could go back to 100 percent of the floor duct so keep that in mind if you if if somebody pulls up to the farm in the winter time and i hear the ac compressor cycle on i know that they have the they have a a, a mode on their hva system that basically is uh evoking um the defroster all right so now continuing on so we understand that the heat comes from the engine the engine uh puts the heat into the liquid the radiator cools the liquid the job of the thermostat is to maintain proper engine temperature and proper liquid temperature not only for the benefit of the engine but for the comfort of the occupants uh, especially during the winter time old style heater systems took the the water they went into the heater core which the heater core is nothing but a mini radiator and that took it from the block in most applications and the newer designs take it right from the head the back of the head so it's the hottest it possibly could be so they could have the lowest tt time to temperature okay so now the heater core or the temperature control for the vehicle for the passenger compartment can be can be manipulated two different ways the old-fashioned way was to have a heater control valve and you had two heater hoses the one hose went into the heater core and the other hose came out and historically it was usually on the inlet side and um, you had a heater control valve and this heater control valve could either be operated through vacuum or it could be operated through a cable and uh, what it would do is it would limit the amount of hot 
water going into the heater core and that was your temperature control inside the vehicle so when you moved it to full hot it had full flow the valve was fully open heater control valve fully open and allowing the all of the liquid uh, coolant that was directed that way to go into the heater core and that would give you your highest discharge temperature as far as on your heater duct is concerned and then if you moved that lever whether it was a slide at lever or a rotary knob and you moved it over to more towards cooler then that valve would start to close and limit the flow all right that was the old-fashioned way of of controlling temperature and a lot of farm equipment have has that also and they still use that type of method that is a heater control valve then around in 1979 General Motors came out with the front-wheel drive X-body cars, which was the uh, the Chevrolet Citation, Buick Skylark, uh, Oldsmobile Omega, Pontiac Phoenix, and uh, maybe there was one else I don't remember anymore, but uh, I think that was it. Buick, uh, Chevy, and Pontiac, and Oldsmobile. And that was, and the reason why I'm telling you this, because one of the breakthroughs with that vehicle that that vehicle had a lot of engineering breakthroughs is that they did away with the heater core i'm not the heater core they did away with the the uh, heat control valve and general motors actually invented what they called a blend air door system and what it would do is that even in the middle of summer the heat the coolant would be going through the heater core there would be no no way uh to shut that off and the reason why they did that is there was a small front-wheel drive car and believe it or not they used the thermal capacity of the heater core to supplement the radiator so that they could put a smaller radiator in the engine compartment because it was a small car not enough not a lot of room and to be able to not and to get the uh the frontal area they wanted for fuel economy and aerodynamics so that was called a blend air door system so when you actually moved the the temperature control on the heater you were not closing and opening a valve what you were doing is you were moving a series of doors underneath the dashboard in the heater box and then if you had it on full hot it directed all of the air across the heater core and as you started to go towards cooler it would it would close that door and, and direct some ambient air there so in essence I don't want to get mired on which door did this but that was a blend air system and probably any vehicle that you would buy today and possibly even some farm equipment would that if it the rule of thumb is if it doesn't have a heat control valve it's got a blend air system and that blend air system basically was invented by General Motors and those cars came out in 1979 and they were tagged as 1980 models and that started this whole blend air door design so as we move forward into diagnostics then it's going to be very important for you to understand that so there was two types of temperature controls to regulate the temperature in the discharge what we'd call a discharge temperature at the heater duct and that it was either a heat control valve or a blend air door so now let's talk about some diagnostics and heaters are very very easy to diagnose uh, but sometimes they're not that easy to fix 
So it's like anything, right? You, it's easy to diagnose and see what's wrong. It's like, you know, getting a soil test on your farm and realizing that you have, you know, a sodic soil or you have a, a problem with this or you have a low organic matter. It's easy to determine. That's not so easy to fix it. So my first diagnostic routine is going to be for no heat. All right, very little heat. So the first thing you need you're going to need to do is you're going to need to confirm the liquid temperature because remember the heater works off the liquid from the engine. You're going to have to confirm the liquid temperature. And if it has a temperature gauge, you could obviously look at that, but I like to use also a thermal gun an infrared gun and make sure that the temperature gauge is reading properly and the if the engine has uh, let's say a 180 degree thermostat then the fact of the matter is is that after a, spe a certain amount of running time a loaded time that coolant should be at least 180 degrees if not more because remember it takes to crack open temperature so it takes another 10 to 20 degrees more to open up that thermostat fully so with a 180 thermostat with some sort of thermal load on that engine not sitting and idling I did a podcast last week about that, about or two weeks ago, about you know not warming up an engine. That that coolant should be bouncing around 190 to 200 degrees. So if you if you don't have good heater performance, the first thing you want to do is check the source, right? And that's the liquid temperature. If the liquid temperature is much below the thermostat rating, then you know most likely that thermostat is stuck open, and that's it's stuck open, and it's never and it's allowing the the coolant, the water to continuously go into the block, I mean, to, into the radiator from the block and never allow it to fully warm up. And that's your temper, and that's your problem why you have a lack of heat. So a weak thermostat or a stuck open thermostat, when it's opening prematurely, will be the first thing you need to determine what's going on to chase a lack of heat problem. Now, keep in mind that the way a thermostat works is that it uses a wax pellet and the wax pellet melts from the liquid temperature and it expands and pushes the thermostat open against the spring so uh so the thing is that if you uh have a failed spring or a failed some aspect of that thermostat you don't need to worry about that they're inexpensive but we need to get that liquid temperature up so no heat very low heat long uh, long time to temperature if what we need to do is confirm the thermostat uh, liquid temperature and most likely it's a thermostat or the system is very low on coolant so what you want to do is you want to so so you also want to come so let's say now the, the engine is at 200 degrees it's fine but we still have no heater performance what you want to do is now you want to locate the two heater hoses as they go into the heater core and you want to feel them you want to feel the hoses one one hand grab the one in the core into the core the other grab out you don't have to know which one is which the temperature should tell you the one going into the heater core should be much hotter than the one coming out all right and why should that be because we have the the in is the heated coolant from the engine and there should be some thermal transfer because the heater core is a little radiator thermal transfer into the air on in the passenger compartment so if that temperature should you should have a differential there and the more efficient that that heater core is the bigger the drop that you're going to have in that temperature all right now if you do not have let's say it's coming in very hot and coming out 
hotter than you would than you think it should be and and you know part of this is empirical you're gonna have to you know get a feel for it so if it's a control valve system so you're using a heater control valve and the inlet hose is very hot and the uh, and the outlet hose is very cold then probably that control valve is stuck closed and not allowing the liquid the water to go into the heater core because that would explain your temperature differential alrighty if the if the heater core or the in and out of the heater core is is almost the same then we have to have a different thought process because you may actually be having a blockage in that heater core and not flowing the coolant and it's and it's thermal transferring from the other side of coming from the engine so you usually see a differential there but not as great a differential as the heater core would be if it's working now if you have a blend air system and you have the same thing one hose real hot one hose real cold or um, then most likely the door is stuck under the dashboard good luck that's usually not a fun job a door is stuck under the dashboard and what would happen is that you would be you would you're not getting the the uh the thermal transfer and that's why the heater core is not restricted in flow but you're not getting the thermal transfer out of it so it's not dropping the temperature It'd be akin to taking a radiator and blocking off the air side that the air is coming the liquid is coming in hot and coming back out hot because no thermal there's no thermal transfer now getting back to the control now keep in mind on the, the control valve is that doesn't necessarily mean that the valve is bad if it's cable operated maybe the cable is binding uh, if it's vacuum operated, maybe the vacuum hose is off, or maybe the vacuum uh, chamber, the vacuum solenoid, is not working. But what you first need to do is you need to diagnose what's happening, and you can do it very easily with your hands. That you want to see that, so you probably want to have a 20 to 30 degree temperature drop coming in and out of that heater core, and, and a more efficient core would actually have even more than that. And obviously you have to have the heater on in the vehicle or in the machine to evoke this, right? So uh, now heater core uh, blockage, if you have a heater core blockage, you would confirm that the, um, that the uh, heat control valve if applicable is working and then you would have hot air coming in and uh, hot liquid coming in and then you would have a, uh, a actually could be very cold specifically in the beginning that we're in thermal trance the other way that the other hose is, is is cold and that heater core is blocked if you have a blend air system uh then the, the door may be stuck but what you could do with a blend air now is move the air position so move it from heat which would be ducting the air to the floor and move it let's say like to vent or move it to uh, to defrost. If you move it to vent, then the hot air is going to come out of the dashboard vent. If you move it to defrost, the hot air is going to come out, obviously, to the top of the dashboard to defrost the windshield. So now, if you have poor heater performance, uh, when it's in the heat position, duct it to the air, then what you'll basically have is a... Uh, and you move it and the door is stuck if you move it to another position and it works now you have discharge temperature you know that the door is stuck alrighty and if not then you probably have a uh, a heater core issue next thing is temperature swings if you have 
a lot of temperature swings where you're going and it gets hot and then it gets cold. If you have a lot of temperature swings, that's usually an air-bound cooling system. The cooling system needs to be bled, that it's air-bound, it's hitting a pocket of air and then a pocket of coolant that's not a solid mass of coolant, or the thermostat is starting to go bad and it's cycling. It's going open and closed. And uh, so if you go and you have temperature swings in a discharge temperature, or if you have a uh, blend air system, what may be happening is that you could have the the uh, the vacuum motor and the vacuum chamber, and there's usually a check valve in there, and that could be defective. So that it you could be climbing a hill, let's say, or loading it, and the vacuum drops off in the motor, and then the door closes in a discharge temperature, uh, gets very cold. So the the blend air systems are very nice, but they're they're nice until something breaks, and then they're a nightmare. So keep that in mind, and then. Uh, and believe it or not, if you have too high a concentration of glycol in your coolant, that glycol on itself is a very poor heat transfer agent, and you will have lower heater performance. So to recap quickly, we have to have we have to first confirm that we have liquid temperature, and that would be basically uh, if it isn't nine chances out of ten, it's the thermostat. All right, then we have to determine whether we have a heat control valve or we have a blend air door system and we have to confirm whether we what the temperature is going into the heater core and then coming back out of the heater core and from that then we could take it it's almost like a mental flow chart and you could go and you could say okay fine and you know don't overthink it because it's really basically very simple you're putting hot water in and it's supposed to drop in temperature and then return back to the engine Alrighty, so if you have any questions on that, I went through it quickly uh, because I don't want this podcast to be too, too long. And uh, please feel free to contact me at, you know, at Hot Rod Farmer at FarmMachineryDigest.com. And now we're going to get into our special delivery segment. And that's brought to you proudly by Firestone Ag. They're a company founded by Harvey Firestone. He was a fourth-generation farmer, and he actually lived in Columbiana, Ohio. Harvey always dreamed of putting rubber tires on farm tractors, and his innovative mindset is the core of Firestone Ag today. And that thought process lives on with their 23-degree tread bar and their AD2 technology, their most modern tires. The soil is the lifeblood of your farm, trusted only to Firestone. we got to protect that soil because if we're growing crops, that's the only thing that we have. Now, I have a letter here, and it's from Douglas by Siri. I, uh, ex- I, I ask for forgiveness if I pronounce your name wrong. Uh, I'll call you Mr. B. And what he writes, it's about battery corrosion. He says, the corrosion associated with batteries is sometimes a dry, chalky, blue or white residue. In other vehicles, it is more consistency of cork and white. What does these differences tell in order to cure the cause of the continually needing to clean the battery areas? Okay, very, very, very good question. And uh, every battery has a vent on it. And depending upon where the vent is located, because when the battery is charging, it gases, it creates a gas. And depending upon where the vent is, that the location of the vent will determine if the battery cables get corroded or not. And in most OE applications, you will find that it is designed to have the vent 
away from the battery terminals so that it does not build corrosion. And if you put a replacement battery, an aftermarket battery, the vent may be near the terminals or it may not be near the terminals. But to, And that's one of the keys why some of them get corroded and some don't. It's based upon where the vent is. Now, keep in mind also that if you have a charging circuit that is overcharging, let's say charging 15 15 volts or more when it's supposed to be 14.8 14.7 is that you will you will gas that battery and you will have an extreme gassing event in that battery and will be more prone to build the uh the acid formation and this mr uh boyer calls it the uh the white corky residue but to answer his question succinctly is that The reason why the residue is different color is because all batteries are not made with the same materials inside and the color of the residue is based upon the the interaction of the materials that the battery uses the battery manufacturer used to make that into a battery you're just like you know there's so many different corn hybrids there's different materials that are used to, to make batteries to make the cells and the plates inside and how that interacts with the plastics and how it interacts with the lead compound that's used for the terminals is what determines the color. So I would not be concerned with the color. What I would be concerned of is that why you're having a for, constantly having a formation of, of a crud, I'll call it that, on your battery terminals. And if, it, if that is the case, then I would put a voltmeter across that battery rev up that engine keep it at a at a higher rpm and read your voltage and if it's probably on most modern applications uh, it's between about 14.6 to 14.7 and if it's uh, way above that you're excessively gassing the battery and if it's in that range that battery that you're using probably has the vents in the wrong position and the, the, when it, the uh, electrolyte gases, it's forming, uh, it's landing onto the uh, terminals, and it's creating that 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 muck on there. All right, and like I say, depending upon their their formation of the chemical compounds in the battery will determine the color of the muck. So don't be so much concerned about that. Be concerned about why it is not uh, why it is gassing to such an extent and or if it is an excessive gassing that the vents in that particular loca- are in wrong location and whatever vehicle or piece of equipment is you probably have an aftermarket battery in it and uh, it well, has a propensity to do that uh, as an aside my new Holland tractor sadly I mean the battery they use in it has the vent near the terminals and that constantly uh, gets them dirty but uh, I guess the way the tractor was designed they really couldn't get another battery in there so that's basically it's 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 the uh from the gassing of the battery and if the vents are in the proper location then you would not see that alrighty so listen I want to thank you so much I also want to tell you that if uh there's another podcast and it uh was it's uh, being posted uh, probably as we speak and it's what to get the hot rod farmer in your life for Christmas is about it was supposed to be 12 12 uh, neat Christmas gifts but it 
ended up being 20. I guess it grew like everything else. That used to happen to me when I used to build a motor. I'm only building a 300 horsepower motor, but the time I got done, it ended up being 600, and 600 horsepower, five times the price. But anyway, so check that out. And on the week of 12-3, there will actually be a uh, article up on the website, farmmachinerydigest.com, to support that podcast so that you could see the different tools and equipment that I'm talking about and different things and have a website to link to them. Uh, also, I had the opportunity to uh, be on the Ag PhD show the other day, and I was talking to Darren Hefty, a great guy. If you listen to Ag PhD, check him out. And uh, Darren asked me to do a podcast on um, specifically for the uh, people down south that actually you know, had to uh, slog through a lot of mud when they were combining their crop this year and to talk about uh, what you need to do to uh, to really clean up that combine and what to check for after harvesting in mud. So I thought that was a great idea and I am going to do that next week. So listen, you have a blessed, blessed day. I hope you had a blessed Thanksgiving and uh, we're coming into the joyous time of the Christmas season, the birth of our Savior. And I just want you to know that I appreciate all of you listening and all of you coming to the uh, website and always know that uh, not only am I pulling for the American farmer and rancher and my beloved America, but I'm praying for you also. May God's mercies and blessings be upon you this holiday season and always. See you next week. Bye-bye.